Hello, this is The Business. I'm Aditya Chakraborty. On this week's podcast, the world's number one investment bank faces investigation in Britain and America for scamming clients. So how does Goldman Sachs get out of this one? The SEC was able to figure out that they did not disclose Goldman Sachs, that there was another horse in this race. Okay, Paulson. The entire British electorate appears to have developed a giant crush on Nick Clegg. But what would he do to the economy? Our manifesto will hardwire fairness into British society. This isn't a promise, it's a plan. A plan based on four steps that will make a real difference to you and to your family. And planes grounded, passengers stranded and imports disrupted. Does the spewing of an Icelandic volcano show us the fragility of our globalised economy? Ark Royal will be sent uh, to the channel. Uh, Equally HMS Ocean will be available at channel ports as soon as possible to help people come to Britain. Uh, And we are sending Albion uh, via Spain uh, to look at what we might do in addition to it bringing the three rifles home. Uh, to add to its numbers as it travels back from Spain. This is The Business from The Guardian. The Business with Aditya Chakraborty. And in the studio today, I've got a top team. I'm joined by our head of business, Dan Roberts, Observer Business Editor, Ruth Sunderland, and Giles Wilkes, Chief Economist of the Liberal Think Tank, Centre Forum. Welcome to you all. Let's begin with the business story of the week, Goldman Sachs is the bank that likes to claim it's doing God's work. But this week it's engaged in a far more profane activity, defending itself against allegations of fraud. The government accuses Wall Street's Goldman Sachs with defrauding investors in the days leading to the economic meltdown. In a civil complaint, the Securities and Exchange Commission says Goldman failed to disclose conflicts of interest in complex mortgage investments. Goldman Sachs is charged with really a blockbuster uh, in both on Wall Street and here in Washington. The SEC announcing these charges against Goldman Sachs and also against a Goldman Sachs uh, Vice President Fabrice Touré. The crux of the case here in accusing uh, the company of fraud in marketing its CDOs. Think of it like a company selling a car with faulty brakes installed by someone hoping the car will crash. The investors were not told that somebody with an opposite economic interest was involved in selecting the portfolio. It's common knowledge now that the U.S. mortgage industry was a pretty dirty business by the time it imploded a few years ago. The big players have only ever been accused of greed. Now though, the U.S. government says the most respected investment bank on Wall Street committed outright fraud. Well, that's the charge in a civil suit brought by American regulators. Goldman Sachs is accused of scamming investors into buying dodgy assets picked by a hedge fund that wanted to bet against them. On Tuesday, the British financial watchdog, the FSA, announced that it too was going to launch a probe into the case. Andrew Clark is a Guardian's man on Wall Street, and when we spoke, he began by describing just how damaging this case could be for the world's number one investment bank. The risk for Goldman Sachs from this lawsuit is that um, their reputation will be damaged to the extent that clients say, well, there's a number of investment banks out there. Why should I go to one shrouded in controversy? I might as well take my business to uh, Morgan Stanley or um, Merrill Lynch or Citigroup or someone. Uh, banking is a reputation and human capital business and um, as soon as your reputation is damaged uh, you start losing those clients and you risk losing your human capital as well they, they take uh, tempting offers elsewhere so 
Um, although those profits are looking good for the first three months of the year, um, we'll just have to see if they hold up as this controversy engulfs the bank. Goldman Sachs has been doing very nicely, and that's despite the fact that magazine journalists now routinely refer to them as a giant vampire squid, that they uh, effectively have to deal with a huge amount of flack from the press and from telly um, over the way they've done so well out of the credit crunch. I mean, how seriously are we to take any reputational damage from an SEC lawsuit? Well, I think this is an entirely different sort of reputational damage, and it's much more serious, much more threatening to Goldman Sachs. The controversy surrounding Goldman up to now has been simply controversy from the public over just how much money they've made uh, and how much they're paying their employees. Um, now, in the eyes of clients, uh, it's it's a good thing to have your bank doing well. Um, this fresh controversy is uh, the U.S. financial regulator accusing Goldman Sachs of fiddling its own clients. Uh, now, that is really the worst thing that a bank can possibly be accused of, betting against your clients and nobbling your clients with an allegedly uh, faulty product. Um, so, really, this is, a, this is a far more serious situation for Goldman than any kind of political outcry over bonuses that's gone before. Andy Clark there. Ruth Sundon, let's begin with you. Just how bad do you think this is for Goldman Sachs? Well, I think it's very bad indeed for Goldman Sachs, and I think it's very bad um, for the rest of Wall Street because I think, you know, it's no coincidence um, that this happened at a time when President Obama, having got health care behind him, is gearing up for a much more full frontal um, engagement with with Wall Street's banks, and there is no bigger fish to catch than Goldman. Um, I'd like to pick up on one thing that Andy Clark said, though. I mean, I agree this is a sort of step change in in uh, you know what we heard about Goldman's reputation, but I don't think they're entirely without form when it comes to questions over their dealings with clients. I mean, for example, a couple of years ago there was the famous spank from Hank memo. This refers to um, Hank Paulson, who uh, was the was um, at that stage in charge of the firm, and um, he was delivering a spank to the London office because um, they had been accused of conflicts of interest with their clients here in terms of they were meant to be defending BAA from a possible takeover bid, and their own private equity arm was involved in a takeover bid for um, BAA. So, you know, it isn't the first time this sort of thing um, has apparently gone on. Although I agree, it's not you know it's not the same magnitude of, of, of accusation. But I think when you get big, diversified investment banks, it's actually very, very difficult, um, much as they might try, if you give them the benefit of the doubt, to keep those, um, you know, to keep those Chinese walls really, really watertight. Dan, it's not only the spank from Hank memo, there was also, uh, I mean, through every single financial crisis, Goldman Sachs tends to come out with an awful lot of criticism direct against it. Going back to 1929, uh, it was it was often blamed for luring investors into these mutual funds, which then blew up. And yet each time Goldman Sachs comes back big and stronger. So just how seriously are we meant to take the threat, the, the, the allegation that it was involved in this? At the risk of sounding like an apologist for Goldman Sachs, I'm going to introduce one note of defence for them, which is that I think that they are, this is a specimen charge, and it's a specimen charge brought not against the bank, but against Wall Street generally. The political context of this is really important, that Obama, having got health care reform out of the way, now feels he has enough political capital to do what 
he should have done um, a year ago, which is really tackle the most powerful vested interest in the world, which is the investment banks. And they've gone for Goldman because it's the biggest and the strongest and it's the big survivor. Um, and they've gone for this mortgage securities fraud because it's the one that is most emblematic of what went wrong. And I think what it gets to is this: the conflict is not so much the inter- between the interests of the bank and its clients, because in this particular trade, Goldman's main defence is it lost money. It was left with some of this toxic rubble um, when it couldn't shift it fast enough. But but it was that it was picking favourites with the clients, and that gets to the heart of this sense that, that investment banking is a bit of a racket. Basically, it's an insider's game. Hedge funds, in particular, were hugely lucrative to the investment banks during the boom. Um, they the investment banks hosted them through these. Uh, situations where they were basically um, uh, they were the sort of the, the the daddy for all of the the investment banks out uh, the, the hedge funds out there, um, looking after their trades, making a lot of money on the trades, also populating the hedge funds with their former employees. And what this particular SEC charge gets to is the idea that if you were one of those chosen Wall Street insiders, and the same happened here in London, that you got to know what was really going on, and then the layer below that. The, the ordinary schmucks, the, the, the German banks, or in our case, RBS or ABN AMRO, got what was meant to be going on. And those d- differing layer of information, that which is effectively a form of insider trading, I think is, is endemic in investment banking. And this is just the tip of a very, very big iceberg. Giles Wilkes, Dan's surely right when he says it's really just a case of Goldman Sachs favouring one client against another. And I just wonder how much people on main streets as it's called are going to be that worked up about a investment bank being being worked over for the sake of a of a hedge fund surely it's just two lots of very rich clients playing get playing off against each other i don't know about that i think part of the problem here is that when the banks were doing very well nobody much really cared how things worked but this has cast a light upon the situation in which none of the people come out looking very good um if there's anything worse than doing extremely badly in the credit crunch, like Lehman Brothers, it seems the worst crime you could do is do very well out of something that quite clearly has impoverished the entire world economy. And doing well out of it doesn't sound like such a virtue. So investment banks, as Dan's pointed out, need two kinds of client. They need the very well-informed ones that help tell them how to orientate their trades and the very stupid ones who don't mind taking the other side of it. And this the excruciating detail and the light that will be um, cast upon this one transaction will give people who didn't know anything about it before a quite horrifying insight into how that whole machine works. I don't think anybody should come out well from this because it sounds like at the very least the um, hedge fund were being very cynical. Um, but also the, the buy side, the people who are buying these um, th- uh, th- these securities, which are incredibly difficult to understand, were clearly getting themselves out of their depth in a horrifying way too. And their investors, who lost a billion, it seems, in a matter of weeks, will be wondering why on earth did they feel that they were in a position to ever get involved in this? So nobody comes out very well from this, even if legally everything turns out to have been okay. People are never going to look at investment banking the same with this um, once once the light has been cast on it. This is one case mm. uh, on one uh, uh, vehicle lodged against one bank. Do you think that we'll find many more of these cases? Yeah, I think this is possibly the most significant point about this. It's an incredibly daunting thing to do to try and open up a case like this. The complexities just to discuss as an abstract economic matter when somebody should be able to take someone else to court for something that they willingly bought in this case are difficult. The idea of them doing it when you've got all the all the legal ramifications, all the who said what and when, 
is far too daunting to take on. But once somebody else has gone there first and has shown the way to do it and has shown the, the popularity, perhaps, of those sort of moves, it opens the door to all the other ones. I mean, on the front of the Financial Times today, you have AIG, one of the massive losers from this financial crisis, looking at the idea of taking Goldman's to court over some other complex transaction that took place. Now, if it, this gets some kind of a snowball effect... Um, who knows where it will end? And that's why I think we saw a far larger movement in the stock market yesterday than you would expect from the possible fine you might get from this one case. Ruth, it's not just AIG that's been affected by this. There's a there's another bank slightly closer to home <laughs> which has also been affected. There is. Well, uh, Royal Bank of Scotland um, has been affected. And although, as you say, Aditya, this on the face of it, this might look like, you know, one lot of rich investors tangling with another lot of rich investors. Of course, via RBS, the British taxpayer has um, a direct interest. I also think as well that, you know, maybe the public um, isn't that riveted by all the kind of absolute nitty gritty, the engine room stuff of how these things work. Um, but I think, you know, the, in America and here, um, people are very concerned just about, um, you know, the whole the whole kind of culture of investment banking. And, you know, Goldman's this morning, they, they made very good profits. They have earmarked, um, you know, billions of dollars more for their bonus pool for this year. And, you know, there is an upsurge of anger um, on Main Street about Wall Street. And I don't think that can be ignored. Dan, briefly, where do you think this goes next? Well, Goldman is defending it with a curious aggression. Well, not curious because it's kind of predictable aggression, but the, uh, they're defense, not known to be yeah. wallflowers, are they're, they? Their defence is kind of um, their grown-ups, um, are, the people who lost on this trade are grown-ups um, acting in a professional's market and it's their lookout, which is an interesting one because on the face of it, you can kind of see where they're coming from. But if you unpick that, what you're left with is this incredible moral ambivalence about the products they were selling because... Bankers like to talk about products, and 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 it is a, is an analogy. But they these CDOs uh, that they created these these these, these securities um, constructs were, were basically they are like a product. And Goldman was selling a faulty product, knowing that they were, that someone was going to benefit from the insurance taken out on that product blowing up. Now you take that and you apply it to Toyota and its faulty brakes, or you're uh, someone building houses, having struck a side deal with some with a fire alarm manufacturer to make sure the fire alarms don't work, yeah. or contaminated food, and you can suddenly see the anger. Now, and I think white collar crime is very difficult to get that read through, but I think it's justifiable in this case. Okay, people's lives weren't at risk, but livelihoods were. I mean, whole millions of people have been put out of work around the world through this the the entire world economy was walked to the brink and i don't think you walk away from that and you certainly don't walk away from it muttering well yeah that's just the way it is you know that's a very dangerous defense um and i think they're they're in, in for trouble this is the business from the guardian now here's a sentence i never thought i'd say but the british public has gone gaga for a lib dem Yes, ever since Thursday's Prime Ministerial debate on television, Nick Clegg has become the man of the moment, which means that he could be in government next month. But what are his economic policies? Step one, fair taxes. They put money back in your pocket. Under the Liberal Democrats, you will not pay tax on the first £10,000 that you earn. You will get £700 back. If you and your partner both work, you will get £1,400 back. If you're working part-time and, and wondering whether it's worth it to take on more hours, it will be. If you're on benefits and wondering whether it's worth it to get a job, it will be. But of course, some people 
will have to pay to make that possible. We're being totally open about that. We will close loopholes that unfairly benefit those at the top. Clamp down on tax avoidance, introduce a new mansion tax, and increase aviation duties. It's because we're being straightforward about those tax rises that you can put trust in our tax cuts. Barack Obama there. Sorry, Nick Clegg. Giles Wilkes, your chief economist at Centre Forum, the Liberal think tank. Can you just outline for us how would a liberal economic lib dem economic policy differ from a labor or tory economic policy first to enter a small caveat we are a liberal think tank it means we're close to the lib dems we're, we're certainly not affiliated to them and so close but not of close but not of but we you know i I'm, i've got the manifesto right here i'm and i'm a fan of it i think it's a good it's got some good strong policies and that probably the strongest one is the one you've just heard there from nick um it's a uh, but it's something that people have not been forced to think about. You're right. Uh, but that, I mean, just to talk about the income tax one for starters, uh, it is a costed policy. Unlike the other manifestos, you can go to the back of the, you can go to the back and look up the numbers, and it will give a pretty realistic assessment of how it might be costed. The trouble is, with the evolving economic situation, would they be able to bring it in on day one? Well, it, it really depends on the way the bond market's looking and so forth. And I sh- I'm sure they'd be realistic about that should it come to it. What's far more important is do they have a realistic plan for the deficit? And it's about as realistic as the other parties, which is about which as far as you can go. Which is not very realistic at all, <laughs> well, is it? Yeah, I mean, Damn if you think, we've, got, we've got, what, 90 billion to close as a structural deficit. None of the parties have gone much beyond 15 billion because they know that until they get into power and they, until they see the economy growing sustainably again, they simply can't say, we know for sure how we're going to do this. But, 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 okay, so leave aside the Liberal Democrat enthusiasm for a moment. Yeah. Just speaking as an economist, I mean, the fierce audacity of efficiency savings doesn't strike me as being a great way to go around tackling deficit. Uh, some and of these and, and not, on that, the Lib Dems are just as bad as Labour. No, some of these are, not, these are not necessarily efficiency savings. Getting rid of something like a child trust fund or getting rid of Trident yeah. or, or getting rid of certain tax credits that and are think, being paid. And thinking you're going to raise five billion quid by stamping down a tax avoidance. That yeah, was that, that, being if, quite unworldly. Now that's the one thing that the IFS have found... Uh, might be optimistic but you've got to remember in the same press release people should read it they've said that on things like the mansion tax and high rate tax relief on pension contributions they've probably been under ambitions and they could have raised more from those so all in all they probably add up to roughly what they need to for that particular tax um, for that particular tax cut yeah there's always been a historic problem uh, more sharply expressed in Lib Dems than with the other parties where the front bench think one thing and would like to have a certain set of policies and the heartland activists think another thing. You saw an example of that last autumn with Vince Cable's uh, mansion tax plans which seemed to go down a big wow with the, with the activists but didn't go down so well with his own front benches. Although I wouldn't, I'd add some nuance to the activists. Some of the activists would have hated it. The ones fighting wealthy London seats would have been going, well, thanks a lot, Vince. And there was, at that conference at the time, there was a fair amount of turmoil about it and arguments about how this could have been launched. But yeah, it, it, it evolved, that policy, quite clearly. And doesn't, but, that, doesn't that show you the difficulties the Lib Dems might actually have if, it came, if they actually found themselves in government after 60-odd years? Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, sure, absolutely, their policies would have to be sharpened up 
with the treasury and the and the full the full help of that but undoubtedly but that is a policy that's pretty popular throughout the country it's fairly easy to know how to do it because after all we have a council tax it's a matter of adding a small supplement onto the council tax property taxes are amongst the oldest and most well established anywhere so when people say oh wow i've heard of this bizarre thing called a mansion tax putting a small percentage onto the value of a home is something that every american state knows how to do and it's certainly something that we could do pretty easily Ruth, the one thing that you uh, we at the Guardian Observer should really welcome about Lib Dems is that they're the party that's talked toughest on the banks. Very much so. I mean, that that's one of the things that I that I like the most um, about what they're saying. Um, I think they ha- they are the strongest in their manifesto on on bank reform. Um, personally, I, I would very much like to see some form of separation um, between the utility side of banking and um, what we call the casino side. Um, and the Lib Dems have gone furthest on that, really. I think one of you know, their biggest asset, apart from um, the wonderful um, St. Nick, is is obviously Vince, and who's, who has called the credit crunch right um, pretty much all the way along. Um, I don't really agree with everything that that um, they're putting forward, but I think on bank regulation, at least they are the strongest. And I think really, um, you know, the the other two parties haven't put forward anything particularly powerful at all. Dan, um, if we did get a really strong turnout for Lib Dems on May the 6th, that would probably mean almost certainly we'd have a, a, a hung parliament and we'd have some kind of coalition government. How, how would markets take that? Well, I think that the markets don't necessarily fear coalitions, but they would fear a constitutional crisis. And I think that some of the scenarios we've seen in recent days, people talking about potentially um, the Lib Dems or the Tories winning the largest number of votes, but Labour getting the largest number of seats, would really open up a constitutional can of worms. Throw into that, if things were really tight, you might see some of the parties beginning to fragment internally. Throw into that, you're going to see some of the fringe parties. I was listening to Alex Salmon on the radio talking about the concession that he would want to wrest from the English were, were there to be a tight parliament. And, and you do have the, the potential cocktail that, um, that, that could um, not just make the deficit very hard to reduce, but could cause a sort of run on sterling and the types of things that's giving this Gus O'Donnell and people in the civil service nightmares at the moment. So I think that is a, that is a factor. I'd also just want to come back on, on two points about the Liberal Democrats' tax plans. I think the first thing to note is that I think they're... they're um, uh, to, I'm almost alone in this, but I think there are ambitions to reduce, uh, to, to bring in extra revenue through tax evasion, closing down tax loopholes are actually not ambitious enough. I mean, we, we as, a, as a paper spent a large chunk of last year investigating the scale of corporate tax evasion in this country, and it's colossal. The industry is measured in the tens of billions of pounds, and, and six billion pounds uh, as, as a starting point is, is, is not, a, I don't think, um, um, out, 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 out of the question. Uh, the other thing I'd say is that the tax changes that the Lib Dems are proposing are incredibly complicated and we talk about the lack of cut through in politics at the moment and the Tories can't get their big society discussed in the pubs but blimey, I mean the Lib Dem tax proposals involve a complete reworking of the tax system. Mm. I think ultimately for a good end I think it is a more progressive approach that they're, they're proposing and it will remove some of the disincentives to work but God, it's complicated. Well, I would have thought it's as straightforward as it can be. I mean when I try and think about 
how would I be in it? What sort of a situation would I be in if I was earning nine grand a year? Under the current system, you'd have a maze of tax credits and benefits and so forth. Whereas the straightforward message that you're out of tax if you earn less than 10 grand, a very round figure, is very easy for people to understand. And if you're a Clegg lover or hater, leave your thoughts in a blog at guardian.co.uk forward slash the business. Make sure you subscribe while you're there so every podcast gets automatically delivered to your MP3 device. This is The Business with Aditya Chakraborty. We were given this hotel um, in um, Mataro uh, with about 120 other EasyJet passengers. And then since then, there's been a kind of very good sort of communitarian spirit. People are sharing information. People are, there's been the regular meetings of passengers trying to come up with ideas um, of, of how to get home. People have tried organising their own coaches, private coaches, you know, uh, to get us back, trying to, to book um, from various ports around Europe to get us home but there's not been any consensus developed of the best way to get home and um, everybody nobody's booked anything either that was the guardian's john dennis who is apparently stranded in sunny spain until easyjet flies him home which i'm sure you'll agree beats the usual excuse for a sickie but as well as causing endless amounts of turmoil to guardian journalists and other more productive members of the human race the grounding of flights across europe has given us a glimpse into what it would be like to live in a less globalized world Dan Roberts, that's a prospect you held out in a piece for The Guardian on Saturday. Yeah, I was quite struck while everybody was focusing on the passengers, which is quite normal. People want, you know, there's been some really um, heart-rending stories of, of, of people stuck and some other stories where you think actually can't be that bad. But <laughs> but it, the, the focus has been on passengers, but we forget all the other things that air travel gives us, um, particularly air freight, which is a sort of vital part of how a lot of industry works um, and delivers all sorts of minor miracles, such as sort of, you know, baby asparagus in the middle of winter and things that, um, that people have begun to take for granted. And it just got me thinking, I was reminded of something of a US comedian who had a sort of viral hit on the internet last year with a little riff called everything keeps getting better and everybody thinks it's worse or something like that and he did much better but basically his, his shtick was that we take for granted these things that are like magic I mean if someone said to you you know we're going to put you in an armchair we're going to fly you around the world for next to nothing and it'll take no time at all and you can get anywhere you like you'd say hang on a minute that can't be true and actually that kind of that that magic armchair is something that we have totally taken for granted we the air travels become as 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 simple as getting on a bus for some people forget the delays Um, and moments like this really shake our sense of you know how fragile that progress is if you think it's progress i mean i there is a whole debate about globalization we might want to get into it we might not but i kind of just think forget the rights and wrongs of it but just pause for a moment and think how vulnerable our society has become and this crisis does present some serious questions about food security too i talked earlier to karen still urban historian author of hungry city i think the main assumption that's being tested is that we can just carry on importing food from all over the world uh, we don't really have to worry about growing any of it ourselves Um, and in fact until incredibly recently this was basically the government position i mean only in 2005 a a, a spokesperson for elliot morley who was then the environment minister said that in an increasingly globalized world the issue of self-sufficiency in food is no longer either necessary or desirable Obviously, you know, nobody's saying that Britain has to produce all of its own food. And, you know, certainly uh, there'd have to be a heck of a lot of climate change before we became very good at growing bananas. But, you know, nevertheless, I think this attitude that Britain's had, it has to be said for centuries. I mean, this is not new, that basically food production is something you can leave to other people and just sort of import it as necessary. 
is really being tested. I mean, nobody in Britain is likely to starve. So I think we do have to look at the resilience of, of the whole way we, we, we feed ourselves and, you know, we live in general. And we, we look to the supply chains that are extraordinarily brittle when you think about it. I mean, there's this famous quote of, you know, Britain being nine uh, meals from anarchy uh, that Lord Cameron of Dillington made a few years ago, basically saying that we've only ever got about three days' worth of food supplies in the country. Things break down very quickly. I mean, I think we saw it in the lorry drivers' uh, strike in 2000. I mean, you know, th- there was panic buying. Ruth, it's not just food. Um, one of the intriguing things that this week's thrown up is it's given us a glimpse into just how, uh, as an economy, we're reliant now upon international supply chains mm-hmm. and the just-in-time delivery of, of goods that we need, everything from clothes to, to workers too. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think one of the interesting things, if I can be allowed a small philosophical digression, is that, you know, it, obviously we all feel very sorry for the people stranded in uh, against their will and being Barcelona. stressed, can't get home. And, I, you know, we all laugh about that, but I think it, it, it does get stressful and probably expensive. But if you think behind that you know this really is a demonstration of the awesome power of nature and how you know this amazing banking system we constructed for instance and people were so arrogant about I mean you know it's like compare that with the with one belch of the volcano and it's so small you know and and it really is a message about our hubris I think um but to go back to your point I um yes it isn't just about food I mean we're we're reliant you know it's energy security it's it's all sorts of things and I you know I was thinking in a way this kind of leads back to um a debate that I've thought a lot about on on kind of how self-sufficient we need to be as a country and how much we can be complacent about selling off assets like, you know, our utility companies, our ports, our bus companies um, to overseas owners. And I say that not out of jingoism, um, but just to say that, you know, these things, not very long ago, we would have been very conscious that these were vital as a nation to, to security, you know, in kind of defense terms in supply terms in feeding ourselves and keeping ourselves warm and you know we do take it for granted that we're at peace that we have communication lines open all the time and at any other period in history these would have been viewed as extraordinary assumptions that we now just live by. Charles, we're just doom-mongering, aren't we? Yeah, you're terrible doom-mongers. <laughs> and and to, in order to add to it, with a bit of colour, you, most of you around here will have read um, Keynes's description of how fantastic globalisation was right. before the First World War. And he, he um, marvelled in a way very similar to Dan there about how he could order from his phone goods from all around the world and wasn't it fantastic and he was writing this book of course in 1919 um, reflecting on the Versailles conference and how this had all been torn to bits then the important point then of course was that it was torn to bits by horrendous human mistakes and here we've had an instance of it happening through natural disaster a sudden natural disaster that you really can't do very much about and thank goodness it wasn't like the volcano of 1783 apparently uh, would have made this look like a tea party but um you know so it is a miracle and we've been we've been taught about how how how, um how unresilient it is potentially but i don't think we should um we should be worried about um continuing to head in this direction because you've got to remember that um, the other, the other very famous book from that period, *The Great Illusion* by Norman Angel, how when people become uh, dependent upon one another, uh, the, the net result is they're less likely to go for war, to go to war. So, when was our food security most threatened? It was during the First World War, when the submarines almost managed to um, bring our food supplies to a halt. Now, 
it's not likely to happen nowadays, partly, I think, because nations are so interdependent on each other, interdependent on each other, that the idea of ever disrupting this um, seems crazy. Of course, I've given a terrible example, because Norman Angel was wrong. He said, there's no way we're going to have war again. Globalisation has fixed that. And then along came the First World War. But if you look at the way people debate the China-America issue right now, the idea of disrupting that trade, disrupting that very important relationship, because some petty nationalistic reason, always seems absolutely mad, because what could possibly be worth doing that? Um, I think... um uh, the thing that this week has shown us, though, that modern communications is um, is not all virtual. That we t- we th- we think of globalization as being um, uh, a function of sort of telephone lines, broadband, weightless economy. Yeah, and we've been wowed by um, um, I, I was I was wowed anyway by the, the site of the BBC reporting live from the volcano the other night, and I thought, well, how did they get there? <laughs> what this has reminded us is that the, the the cornerstone of modern globalization is actually air travel, and air travel is an incredibly clunky quite old school industrial process okay the machinery is very very high tech these whirring fan blades operating at above their melting temperature and all these things um, are very very high tech but they're also they can be completely knocked off course by a tiny speck of dust and and that i think is quite interesting that that actually modern globalization is a is an industrial process it's not just about you know fast mm. broadband connections on the other hand though modern communications do make it a lot easier to to cope i mean we've got at the observer there are various people including the deputy editor stuck in various places around the world and um you know they're all still able to file their copy and there was a bit of discussion about well could we sort of skype paul webster into a discussion if he couldn't get back (laughs) and you know so that that is um you know that that that's progress isn't it well let's end there before we talk ourselves into an utter depression my thanks to ruth sunderland Dan Roberts and Giles Wilkes from Centre Forum. Don't forget to add your voice to our debate at guardian.co.uk forward slash the business. This podcast was produced by Tim Maybe. I'm Aditya Chakraborty. Thanks for listening.